One of the lessons in leadership is you've got to be yourself. You've got to learn, you know, when you're young, you're sort of reading about leaders and you get excited when you sort of like a leader you might see out there or read about. Uh, but in reality, eventually you realize, you know what, nobody does you better than you. Hello, leaders, and welcome to the Military Leader Podcast, where you can find conversations with today's most successful leaders. I am Andrew Stedman, and I want to thank you for taking the moment to check out this episode. You can find this episode and lots of other leader development content at themilitaryleader.com. And if you haven't visited the website yet, I invite you to head on over there after this interview and check it out. You'll find blog posts that I've written and that my colleagues have written on leadership, and then you can connect on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and join the conversation about leadership that is happening every day in the military leader community. Now, if you're like me, you've noticed that too often leader development takes a backseat to other activities. We don't talk about leadership enough. We don't coach it enough. We just end up getting too busy. And then we wonder why followers haven't grown into the leaders we expect them to be. Well, with this podcast, I hope to make it easier for you to become a better leader and then grow your team to become better leaders as well. I've connected with leaders of many professions, not just the military, who are making an impact and are excited to share their lessons and insight with you. And I'm fired up that the very first guest on the Military Leader Podcast is General Robert Brown. General Brown has spent the last 37 years leading soldiers from platoon to corps level and is the current commander of U.S. Army Pacific Command, which, as he'll explain in the interview, is the Army's largest component command. But what I love about General Brown is that he is passionate about developing leaders. Anyone who has ever worked for him can tell you that. When he talks, you hear words like trust, empowerment, and character, and those words really mean something to him. And he's got a coach-like ability to keep people motivated and to lead them through the toughest situations. And that really comes out in this interview. You'll hear him, uh, among other things, you'll hear him talk about what he calls the toughest day of his career in Mosul in 2004 in the Chow Hall bombing there. It was a tragic event. He'll also talk about authentic leadership and how the Army should be doing better at tough, realistic training to prepare soldiers for the rigors of future combat. It's a great chat. Tons of lessons in here. I know you'll enjoy it. Here's my conversation with General Robert Brown. General Brown, welcome to the Military Leader Podcast, and thank you for taking the time today. You know, sir, I'm really excited about this interview, and I know the audience will be excited about it, uh, particularly because you're passionate about the topic of leadership and never hesitate to invest in developing leaders whenever you can. Uh, I'd like to give the listeners a little bit of perspective about your current duty and your command there. Would you take a moment to describe uh, U.S. Army Pacific's mission and its impact on the Pacific theater? Yeah, absolutely. And Drew, let me just thank you for doing this. This is the type of initiative we need more of, the military leader. And uh, uh, you've had the website for a while now doing the podcast. I really applaud it. We don't talk enough about leadership. We talk about a lot, but not enough still. And we certainly don't spend enough time developing leaders. So, uh, a tremendous job. So let me, Thank yeah, you, on the uh, U.S. Army Pacific, first of all, I'm really uh, fortunate to command the Army's uh, largest Army Service Component Command, about 106,000 uh, across the Pacific, which is 52% of the Earth's surface. Uh, you know, we say from Hollywood to Bollywood, polar bears to penguins. Uh, and the th interesting thing about the Pacific is there's a lot of blue. And so some people say, well, it's a Navy uh, theater, it's an Air Force, but it's a joint theater. Uh, and by the way, people live on the land. So, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's yes, a lot sir. of blue, but they live on the land. And, and it's interesting. I was fascinated. You know, mega cities is a big trend. They're growing all over the world. We know uh, 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 combat we've seen recently in, uh, in cities, unbelievable, like we haven't seen since World War II. But there's 36 mega cities in the world. 24 of those 36 are in the Pacific, which is very surprising to people. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yes, 24 sir. of the 36 and growing more than anywhere else. Seven of the 10 largest armies in the world are in the Pacific. Another surprising fact to people, seven of the 10 largest. And it's a complex theater, 36 countries, 16 time zones. Uh, you know, when you look near-term threat is obviously North Korea that where we're uh, at greater tensions than I've ever seen in my 37 years before. And, and then longer-term challenges, China, uh, and certainly Russia's in the Pacific as well. And then we do have violent extremist organizations. So that's just a little bit. Uh, and for U.S. Army Pacific, 
sometimes confusing for folks. We're the component command for Pacific Command. So I'm the Army component uh, to the uh, combatant commander, Admiral Harris. And, of course, there's an Air Force, Navy, Marine special ops component. And uh, that's, that's the role. And so I really have two bosses in the combatant commander out here in the theater. And then, of course, my Title 10 duties, the chief of staff of the Army, uh, General Milley. Uh, as well. So that's, yes, that's probably more than anybody ever wanted to know about U.S. Army Pacific, but it gives you a good background. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. you got your hands full, certainly. Um, well, if I could ask you, sir, then how about your leadership approach in USERPAC? Is it, is it different from your previous commands, your mindset? You know, uh, it is, it, I would say, one of the lessons in leadership is you've got to be yourself. You've got to learn you know, when you're young, you're sort of reading about leaders and you get excited when you're sort of like a leader you might see out there or read about. Uh, but in reality, eventually you realize, you know what, nobody does you better than you. So when I look at my leadership approach, I, I, I try to uh, be myself. I consider myself a, an authentic leader and, uh, and I'm all about empowering uh, folks and mission command develop, which is, you know, of course, developing that trust is key to that. And, you know, we were working this, uh, as we were, uh, fighting in Iraq in uh, early 2000 and prior to that, we were starting to see this trend, how the world had gotten so complex. The, uh, army's, uh, you know, uh, uh doctrine of command and control just <clears throat> didn't apply anymore. You couldn't, uh, it just wasn't, it was too slow. To, to, for, for the threat we're dealing with and the complex problems we had. So I really admire in 2008, we shifted to mission command and that, and that's uh, clearly been my approach and style. Now I will say when you go at the strategic level, uh, there, there is a difference and the problems are tougher. And, and quite honestly, you know, you don't, you don't realize it. You, you get less guidance the higher up you go. I guess I always thought you'd kind of get more, but you get less. And, uh, you know, you uh, kind of balance keeping your bosses informed occasionally to get you back on azimuth. But you're really out there trying to figure out these, uh, you know, tougher, you know, that term's pro- popular today, wicked problems. And at the strategic level, they're pretty damn wicked or they wouldn't be strategic problems. And yes, uh, yes, operational sir. level, it's amazing. When I was a core commander, I thought the problems were so tough. They seem easy to me now at the strategic level and certainly tactical problems. They can be very complex, very tough, uh, but it, uh, it's something you are used to the tactical and operational level more. You, you work at your entire career and the strategic, you get little bits of exposure. So, you know, uh, it, it is a little bit different style and, uh, because of that strategic level. Yes, sir. Well, would you say that those little bits of exposure prepare you for this job? I mean, when, when do you become the strategic leader that you are now? Oh, good question. Uh, you know, I think one thing we know for certain is uh, we've got to start earlier uh, in creating and developing strategic level leadership. I don't think I started early enough. Uh, I was really, you know, you're consumed with a tactical, you're consumed with that level is so tough. And you get, you know, again, I got exposure as a young officer. I got to uh, uh, serve as an aide to the vice chief of staff of the Army as a major. Well, that exposed me to strategic level, and I was just uh, blown away with uh, all that they dealt with. And, it, and I learned from watching senior leaders how they handled very complex problems. And I would find myself later sort of, you know, when I was thrown in scenarios saying, what would general griffith do in this case general ron griffith was vice chief of staff okay. in the army and and so uh you know i think uh but what we've had i've had arguments lately with uh you know a joint staff and some others uh, where we're trying to start developing in the army when i was uh, at uh, combined arms center leavenworth working leader development and here in the pacific working leader development trying to start earlier uh captains uh mid-grade ncos and folks will say oh that's too early and I believe that's old think uh, uh, today. Uh, the, the young leaders, we have privates thrown in uh, complex problems on a daily basis. Now, they're not necessarily making strategic decisions, but their actions can have strategic impacts. That's for darn sure. And uh, and so, you know, they, and then we're requiring more from leaders, younger and younger. So I believe we've got to start broadening and exposing folks to a strategic level uh, much earlier, operational level as well, much earlier, the, uh, because that's how the world has changed and the problems are so much more complex. Yes, sir, for sure. And my own broadening experience, I know that I was 
a challenge to live above my my capability at many points, and I had to I had to go through a rapid learning curve there, and it did. It was I think it was formative in the development. Yeah, no, uh, and sometimes you know you're going into those experiences, and you'll hear things like, oh, I mean, I heard this when I was younger. Oh, you're you're done now because you're going off to do that. Uh, teach at West Point, or you're going to get a master's, or you're going to this job, uh, you know, wherever. And, and, and uh, you know, we got to get out of that mindset. It is not all operational time. All you, You've got to be broadened and understand. Yeah, you got to do the tactical, you got to do the key jobs in your branch and so forth, of course, and the key uh, developmental jobs, of course. But you also have to broaden and, and you got to get out. And it makes you better. I, I went to grad school for fairly early at University of Virginia get a master's in education and uh i have used that in every job since that was 1986 every job i've had since it has helped me uh and uh you know it just it taught me so much about broadening my uh aperture and so forth and getting uh more more operational strategic yeah yes sir Yes, sir. Well, speaking of teaching, sir, if you kind of roll back to your your time as a young leader um, and you think about your experiences, who had the most influence on you as a leader? What did you really learn from them? What was the defining lesson you took from that person? Well, yeah, I w- I've been ext- I've been so fortunate. You know, there's there's a lot of luck involved. I joke. Uh, I never in a million years thought I'd be a general. Uh, I'm yes, pretty pretty much convinced I got the wrong brown. The, the value of having a common name. <laughs> Uh, by the time the government sorts it out, I'll be retired. They'll pull my paycheck yes, back, you know, and I'll get private pay or something. But anyway, it's all good. Uh, but I was, I've was i been very fortunate. I started with one of the greatest leaders in our country. I got to play basketball for Coach K, Coach Mike Krzyzewski at West Point. He's the reason I went to West Point. And uh, I didn't realize it then, what I was learning. But, oh, my goodness, uh, there's an individual that knows how to uh, – and knows inspirational leadership and how to motivate people better than I have ever seen. He knows how to develop a team. And the thing that I took away as I was looking at, you know, was Coach K incredibly smarter than other coaches or leaders? Was he incredibly uh, gifted? But no, he he had a passion, though, and he understood, uh, you know, he just always and never satisfied and wanted to get better and better and better. And that's how he developed those incredible skills, uh, people skills, motivational skills. So I learned that very early on. I was very, very fortunate. And I would tell you, I have had numerous uh, amazing leaders who taught me a ton over the years. And rather than, uh, I don't want to reel off 10, 15 names, but I did mention General Ron Griffith, who was an amazing leader and that here he was a vice chief of staff of the army, four-star general. And he treated uh, somebody he met on the street for the first time, the exact same as he treated the president, a humble leader, an authentic leader, uh, genuine. You know, when I first met him, I thought, man, this guy's phenomenal. And I thought, geez, I almost don't want to get to know him better because you know how sometimes you think somebody's great, you get to know him and it kind of, oh boy, they weren't as great as I thought. Mm -hmm. That was the opposite with him with the many leaders I've been fortunate enough to work for that uh, they just kept amazing me. And I was very fortunate. And, you know, and, and many of these folks, they judged me, they, they allowed me to uh, uh, do those things. I love uh, innovative, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and get out there and uh, try new innovative methods and not just, uh, you know, the same old thing, whether it be in training, uh, leader development, uh, and, and across the board. So it's just very Thanks, fortunate. Sir. Yeah. What a, what a great crucible of, of, uh, of leadership there under him. I, I, I can imagine yeah. that's, that's amazing. Have you continued the relationship over the years? Yeah. Uh, that's, what's amazed me. You know, uh, your coach is always your coach and I still, you know, I'll see him, I'll get nervous. He's going to yell at me about my defense or something, you know, but, uh, but, but we become friends and, and I'm fortunate enough, uh, about six years ago, General Dempsey, when he was uh, chief of staff, put me on the Center of Leadership and Ethics Board. Uh, that's just fantastic. Meets once a year, and uh, I'm a military member, like not on the board, but a military advisor. And it's at sports, business, and we talk uh, leadership and ethics. And I briefed him on the Army ethic, uh, Mission Command. But Coach K's on that, and I so I see him, and we stay in touch. He's such a busy guy, though. I don't like to bother him and stuff, but I, you know, he could always pick up the phone and uh, get a hold of me and I'd, I'd uh, help him out and I could always do the same. And he did have, I was fortunate enough, he let me, uh, he asked me to talk to the Olympic team when he was coaching it the first uh, two uh, times he coached the Olympic team, the very first meeting. And uh, oh, wow. I asked him if we could bring in, I said, they don't want to really hear from uh, Colonel Brown. So I was able, I was able to bring in wounded warriors 
guys you know from uh, uh, Striker Brigade, Scotty Smiley, DJ Skelton, uh, Christian Steele, uh, amazing guys. And Scotty Smiley lost both his eyes, a suicide bomber. DJ Skelton was hit by an RPG, and, and uh, uh, Christian Steele was uh, in a bombing. We'll talk suicide bomber incident. We'll talk about a little later, but. Uh, Anyway, they talked to the uh, these NBA players, and it changed my whole view of the NBA. You know, they talked about selfless service, and again, Coach K's mastery of taking these guys who make billions, you know, and well, millions, I guess, and uh, and and teaching them how to be selfless and and play for their country, and that's why he won three gold medals. So, yeah, I feel very fortunate. I continue to learn from him, and he's still a mentor to this day. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Yes, sir. That is fantastic. I just saw a quote from him um, and it said uh, leaders have to search for the heart on a team because the person yeah. who has it can bring out the best in everybody else. And that just it rings so true for me. And, and I, I bet you feel the same way about leading in the army. No, there's no doubt. Uh, we, there, we we have never had a problem doing enough training and, and training is important, tough, demanding, realistic. But do we train the the human dimension enough do we develop leaders that thrive in ambiguity and chaos not just comfortable but thriving and do we put as much into those skills people are our advantage in the army some other services they're phenomenal god bless them they're great teammates but they're system centric you know they're all about the platform we're all about the people and that is our advantage empowered people uh, quality of which like our non-commissioned officer corps that no one else has no one else can empower that way. That's our advantage today in this complex world. But sometimes we we uh, handcuff them. We give them, you know, too many 350-1 requirements and too much crap on their plate, and they can't, you know, and we, we make them uh, no different than uh, somebody who's not empowered in another army, like, say, in China or whatever. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know, I was just having that conversation this morning, sir. I was sitting down with the company commander and his first sergeant and his team there, and, and, and we were talking about exactly that, the, the requirements and the distractions and the, the multiple priorities. And they were commenting about how priority is just supposed to be one thing, but it turns out to be multiple things. And yeah. I, I remember what General Perkins said to us at the pre-command course in Leavenworth. And he said, look, the army, this is how the army runs. It's going to be competing demands and you're going to have uh, too much to do at one time. He said, we're not looking for leaders who can fix that problem. We're looking for leaders who can navigate it positively That's and bring right. the team along uh, to the end, to, you know, to the finish line. And I thought that was a really good message. Well, that does my heart good to hear. That's exactly what needs to happen. Battalion commander and company commander having that conversation. And what are you going to do in those priorities and what aren't you? And then it's backed up by your brigade commander. It's backed up by the division commander. That's what I ask uh, for my two stars is back them up. you got to put it in writing. Here's the things they're going to do. Here's the things they're not going to do. So, you know, if they don't do something and, you know, the, 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 the uh, folks come down and say, oh, wait, you didn't do this. Well, you're backed up by the two-star. You know, we got to put our money where, where, our, where our, uh, our mouth is and, uh, and, and uh, back it up and do it. You know, because we have mission command when we're deployed. It's unbelievable. We all, you know, you're, you're, you've got it. And uh, people understand if we come back in a uh, garrison, in a home station environment, and unfortunately it tends to lean towards micromanagement, and we got to get away from that. we got to use mission command there as well. Never be the same as deployed. But it's got to be close. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, sir, a second ago, you, know, you mentioned the the very, I mean, the unfortunate uh, Chow Hall bombing in uh, 2004. So I'd, I'd just like to frame it up for the the listeners here. Uh, so December 1st, or excuse me, 21st, 2004, uh, you were the commander of First Brigade 20th, 25th Infantry Division, which was the second Striker Brigade combat, combat team to form and then deployed to Iraq. Uh, the Lancers are one two five. They've been in Mosul for just a few months uh, when an answer Al Suna. Uh, insurgent entered the chow hall at Fab Marez there and detonated a suicide vest near a large group of soldiers and workers and Iraqi soldiers. It was it was terrible. Killed 22 people, injured 72 others. And there are tons of lessons that we could uh, unpack from this, sir. I mean, what what an incredible event to have to lead a formation through. But I'd like to ask about that leadership during the crisis. How did this tragic event challenge you and what approach did you take in leading the brigade through it? Yeah, well, the first thing I'd like to, you know, just uh, the, those heroes that remain in our thoughts and prayers, as not a day goes by, I don't think about it. I had six soldiers I lost in my brigade in that uh, terrible event, and it was the toughest day of my life. Uh, nothing could have ever prepared any of us for it, the most, the toughest training. You just can't prepare for something like that. It was the greatest uh, leadership challenge I'd had, uh, you know, working through that. We had 
you know, in the in the northern Iraq, we had from the Syrian border, the Turkish border, the Iranian border, and we had 40 plus fobs and cops. And uh, so a pretty devious, uh, you know, for over a year, uh, Al Qaeda got a Saudi Arabian medical student and uh, infiltrated him into the Iraqi army. And little by little over the year, he brought the explosives in had him under his uh, uniform and vest as the Iraqis came in, the DFAC, as they did every day. And uh, I was, uh, on that day, I was walking with one of my battalion commanders right towards uh, the suicide bomber, stopped to talk to a soldier, uh, kept walking. It was about 30 feet away when, when it went off. And uh, the immediate reaction is, uh, you know, you do go into that mode of training and uh, immediately calling for mass CASAVAC an incredible teamwork that occurred. I would say well over a hundred plus lives were saved from the immediate reaction and units. It was a variety of units, you know, again, there's units from all over on the FOB and, uh, and so folks teamwork to get them and evacuate them, treat, uh, triage, treat and save as many lives as, as possible. But, you know, again, the, uh, this enemy, they, uh, uh, you know, constantly planning and looking at every opportunity. And in this case, they had an insider at the combat support hospital. So they timed uh, when the casualties arrived at the combat support hospital, mortaring the the hospital as well and mortaring those uh, uh, casualties waiting uh, on the flight line to be evacuated. So some heroic things, incredibly heroic things happened that day. And the response uh, was absolutely uh, uh, overwhelming from everyone involved, uh, uh, you know, from from CIA, State Department to, uh, you know, 20 different units. So uh, and the, the thing that uh, struck me is, uh, you know, and again, you know, not to, uh, I, you know, just uh, one of the uh, individuals uh, killed was a company commander, probably the, one of the finest human beings I've ever known, uh, Captain Bill Jacobson. And... Uh, was like a a son to me, Uh, you know, studied, I was on brigade staff for about a year before taking command. And I think I gave him every book I had in my library about command. And he was an amazing commander the day before leading an incredible fight uh, where over 80 Al Qaeda were killed. And uh, Bill was there leading it and uh, happened to be the first one to get to him in the defect. And, uh, and so you, you know, you look at that and you had to go to that company. Now they worship this commander and, uh, you know, so these are things that, uh, you know, if you have not, if you don't have the trust in a unit and the cohesiveness, it's certainly not going to come uh, after that. And, you, and so you work through it and, uh, you know, uh, the commanders all got together that same day as that uh, bombing, uh, a uh, major offensive was scheduled later in that, that day. And uh, 11 battalion commanders uh, getting together and, uh Everyone unanimously said we are we're continuing that offensive and getting out there and uh, there, you know, and uh, uh, in fact, uh, did that. And then you look at so that's the the lowest and the toughest, again, thing I've ever gone through. And and so you you, uh, you know, you have to uh, uh, build on uh, those incredible, that incredible trust in those relationships. And you have to show and when you you really would like to. Uh, just sort of uh, go and uh, uh, and, and uh, reflect and and uh, do nothing but take care of the wounded and and uh, those families. Uh, you, you're doing that, but at the same time, you've got to you got to show that uh, resilience of how you respond in a tough situation, so the unit uh, bounces back very quickly. And we did bounce back, you know, to the point we had some really tough challenges. No one thought we could have elections in Mosul. And about a month and a half after this, after a lot of work and efforts where we used the only deception plan uh, brigade level across the, the, the entire uh, area of operations, we were able to, you know, because of that effort, we we're able to have uh, probably the highlight uh, of successful elections and actually allowing the Iraqis for the first time ever to vote uh, and, and choose their leadership. And so, you know, you go from this, the worst uh, to a success because of tremendous leaders, uh, caring leaders that, that took care of those who were hurt uh, and hurting, and yet 
kept the focus of the unit where it needed needed to be uh, to do what our nation asked us to do. And uh, yes, sir. in that situation. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think about the severity of that attack and the impact that it had on the units. And I think forward a little bit to perhaps a conflict on the Korean, uh, Korean Peninsula, which is by everybody's estimation, would be a, certainly a different fight than we've had in the last uh, 15, 16 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think that units will take a, a different kind of, uh, it'll take a different kind of toll on our units. And I think they'll, they'll see more uh, impact on their soldiers, uh, you know, in, in the form of casualties and hardship than they have before. And I'm thinking how leaders can prepare themselves mentally for that type of fight. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, there's no question. The, the best thing you can do is tough, demanding, realistic training. Uh, and now uh, we say that all the time. and It's become like a cliche, uh, you know, tough, demanding, realistic training. And what I find is we're often not doing realistic, demanding training where, you know, we're working with minimal amounts of information where when you're deployed in a scenario in Korea or anywhere in the world, there's going to be overwhelming amounts of information. It's going to be extremely complex and in our training events are often uh, not nearly complex enough. And then the other aspect is we leave out uh, the, uh, the the key human dimension, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and how do we work that leader development to to really push those leaders, teach them, coach them, mentor them? So again, so they can thrive in that ambiguity and chaos, and they can deal with you know. And it's it it uh, you know when when things get tough, it's going to be you know people will. Uh, you know, ready and resilient uh, is critical. And that resiliency uh, is not always an automatic thing. It takes an effort to uh, develop the resiliency. And, and I find that uh, part of it in our resiliency is, uh, is uh, the spiritual fitness, just as much as physical, uh, the mental, the spiritual fitness. It does not need to be in the spiritual fitness. I'm not talking necessarily religious. It may be your religious foundation. It may be, uh, you know, a uh, mindfulness. It may be a uh, uh, meditation. It may be. But anyway, there is it's a deliberate look at that aspect, because, you know, as Marshall said, the soldier's mind is everything. And, uh, you know, if you don't have uh, the right attitude uh, in, in, you know, with, with the soldiers, you're not going to be able to handle those this complex, these complex scenarios and these these tough, tough situations that are that are out there, and again, the potential of, as you say, a much more lethal uh, fight than than uh, any of us uh, alive today have ever seen. Uh, and now we, you know, again, we uh, right now, of course, the diplomatic effort is the lead in that, and, and uh, we we uh, we hope uh, you know that that works. And we, but hope can't be a method. General Gordon Sullivan told us, and as military, we have to be prepared. We have to be ready. So I sure as heck would be doing the toughest, most demanding realistic training I could, combined with that holistic approach of making sure you're getting after those key aspects to keep people as our advantage uh, and working on those areas includes, like I mentioned earlier, mission command and empowerment. And you can't, what I find is units will assume that you can build trust. They don't really work on it that much. Uh, but you can't assume it. You must work on it all the time. Take advantage of every situation to build trust. There's no time where you couldn't in, in a unit uh, where you shouldn't look at how are you building trust? How are you building that trusted team? How are you increasing uh, the effectiveness of that team? What I find is we kind of go through the motions. Oh, that's something we do when we're in a big exercise. That's something we do when we're at a CTC. That's something you, you got to be doing it every day or you will not be able to handle the complexity and the challenges in this uh, current environment we're in. Yes, sir. Well, Covey, uh, in the speed of trust, he defines trust as character plus competence. And I've, I've always thought that was a pretty good analogy and a pretty good way to describe it here, too. Um, and what I see that is, you know, the, the competence is those is the tactical confidence and the tactical that, you know, uh, ability and, and lethality that comes from that realistic training. But then the the character part of it is doing the right thing and sharing that hardship. I think that's, that's, which, that's a part of it too. Which is ex exactly uh, well said, Drew, when I'm talking the human dimension, character, ethical behavior, values, the character aspect and the ethical, the real reason we had to add an army ethic into doctrine in the last couple of years is, 
know, character and ethical behavior is so critical. And we will be challenged more today than ever before in history. In fact, uh, no matter who the opponent is, they're going to try to get after character flaws and they're going to exploit them. If we if we show them, it's going to it's going to be everywhere. And today you have that capability. Uh, an individual does something wrong and it's on CNN that night, you know, and I often joke, I'm glad that my uh, first company uh, when I was in command, they, the stuff wasn't uh, the world was totally different. And we didn't know what they did because I wouldn't be here today if all that was on CNN that night. It was a different world and you could make mistakes at a lower level and keep them confined to your unit and fix them. It can't anymore. And the character is uh, more important than ever. And those, those key skills, again, uh, as you mentioned, the competence is certainly a part of it. But I think the character is the, the tougher part, uh, doing the right thing when no one is watching, that discipline required. Uh, that is tough in very challenging yes, times and situations. Yes, sir. And if I could ask you your advice, perhaps to say a company commander who is dealing with some challenges in his company, say whether it's from, I mean, the, the stuff that's happened out there, there's DUI, there's positive urinalysis, there's all these things that challenge him, uh, him or her in their time and in, and in, in damaging their culture. You know, what advice do you have to those leaders, sir? I think the investment in people, uh, well, first of all, the tough demanding realistic training helps because soldiers want tough demanding training. They'll complain about it. You know, that's just how it is. But then they'll be, uh, you know, talking crap, you know, crap to all their buddies and everything. They did the toughest training. You know, they'll, but and then there's the other aspect. I found a very effective when you have first line supervisors working with soldiers on those uh, 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 human dimension uh, aspects, the character, the, you know, things like goal setting. OK, it, you know, a soldier with goals that understands them and, and understands how to break those down where they want to get and they're focused a lot less likely to go out and do something stupid, a lot less likely uh, to let one small incident cause them to fall off the cliff. They're going to be much more resilient and someone that understands how to deal uh, with, you know, how to build their resiliency, how to, you know, you don't want to uh, find out who you should talk to and, and uh, what methods you use during the crisis. You want to be before the crisis. And, uh, you know, and so it's, it's really key. And unfortunately, those are the things we often put in the, well, we'll get to that stuff when we have time and we never get to it. And then you can see that a company commander, really any level, will start having uh, problems in those areas because uh, they're just not addressing them right. And the leaders, engaged leaders, it's tough. It's not easy. But engaged leaders will get after those challenges at that level and uh, help develop uh, those soldiers so there'll be fewer and fewer of those problems. And, and you'll start to see you can take your, uh, you know, one of the an average soldier and you give them goals and you'll see they'll be your best soldier before you know it. If you do it right. Yes, sir. It's pretty amazing. Yes, sir. Yeah. I remember the goals book that you had in one, two, five there. Um, yeah. And that, w when did you decide you were going to do something like that, sir? I actually learned that when I was teaching, there's again, a broadening thing. So teaching at West Point, I got involved in this uh, brand new thing back in 1989, 90. It was the uh, center for enhanced performance at West Point. And, uh, and it, I actually wrote the manual, take the principles of uh, sports psychology and apply them to leadership. And it was really fascinating. I uh, haven't been an athlete. It was uh, kind of so, you know, goal setting is a key thing. Focus and concentration skills, visualization. You know, almost every Army manual says to visualize the battlefield, visualize this, visualize that. Nobody tells you how to visualize. And there is a way to visualize. And the best leaders can visualize what they want and get their intent out so everybody else can understand it as well. Uh, you mentioned General Perkins earlier. He's one of the best I've ever seen at that. He can, you know, visualize where you need to go, give an intent. Just like when he seized uh, Baghdad uh, using commander's intent, probably one of the greatest examples ever of commander's intent and mission command. Uh, and before we even had it as our philosophy, and uh, that's, uh, you know, so that's absolutely critical. Uh, and and those things. Uh, so I, I was fortunate enough to learn those as a young captain. And then I carried that to my uh, G3, uh, I'm sorry, uh, S3, XO time, G3 training time, my time as a battalion commander, brigade commander. It's one of the few things I made mandatory, really, at brigade and below. I, I uh, encouraged it as a corps commander, but I didn't make it mandatory. I didn't want to be that uh, draconian. Uh, but, you know, you can almost, I could tell units that were using 
those methods because they'd always perform the best and you could you you knew they were using uh, they were they were uh, highlighting those areas taking the time to develop leaders uh and get after uh you know those key things to to make people successful not just taking it for yes, granted sir. or blowing it off yeah yes sir Yes, sir. And, you know, that's sometimes runs a little bit contrarian to the typical uh, hard army leader at the tactical level that we've come to expect and and anticipate. How, how does a person at the tactical level who's just growing up and, and you know, f- filling in their army identity, but knows that they should and want to be uh, positive and be an encouraging leader? How, how do you help them bridge that gap uh, away from the stereotype that they think they need to live? Yeah, it's uh, interesting because the stereotype comes from uh, television, movies, you know, books where they don't, you know, we're just portrayed uh, the army, you know, leadership in the military. It's 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 usually written by people that don't get it, don't understand. Uh, they think it's all, uh, you know, nobody thinks just a bunch of robots shut up and do as I say, and nothing could be further from the truth. The most innovative people in the world are those closest to the problem in combat, those young leaders, uh, you know, private specialists, E5s, because their lives depend on it. And they're innovative as can be, and they're amazing, and they'll amaze you with their innovation. So it, I would say the thing that's interesting is uh, people think, you know, as a platoon leader, I saw this nice commanding the maneuver center and had, of course, the uh, armor and infantry uh, lieutenants there. And, you know, they would think, I, I can't change my mind. I have to tell them what to do and be a tough leader. And as, God forbid I change my mind, I'll look like a wishy-washy leader. Now, if you don't change your mind today, maybe that was true 20 years ago because you only had so much info. You'd get one or two pieces of info and then, you, you know, go charge, take the hill, whatever. Now, today, you're getting overwhelming amounts of info. You're getting info all the way up. You know, the plan changes 10 times from the op board when you LD and, and you'd be an idiot to disregard that info. Of course, you're going to update it. And so things are different. And then they think they have to be the tough individual who stands up there and says, look, you know, I know what, what to do. And none of, none of you, I thought, you know, the old, uh, sometimes you hear an NCO, you know, in the old days, they'd say, you know, I, hell, I've been uh, uh, in, in the latrine longer than you've been in the Army. What the hell would you know? And I would tell you, it takes a more confident leader to stand up in front of a group, whether it's a squad, platoon, or I've done it in front of a corps, and say, I don't have all the answers. We need everybody on this team. The best idea may come from the newest person in the organization because they're not tainted with some of the way we do things. And they may have the best idea that saves the day. And I've seen it over and over and over again in combat. The best idea is coming from the lowest level. And I give you a thousand examples. And I know you've seen it too. So, yeah, you've got to be tough. But sometimes a, a one of the greatest signs of toughness is you have the confidence to say, guys, I don't know what the hell to do. Let's work this out together. Let's figure it out. And uh, so I think people do, as I mentioned a little bit in the beginning, people struggle for that identity when they're young leaders and they read books and they feel like maybe they need to be like Patton. Maybe they need to be like this person, that person. You need to be yourself. Nobody does you better than you. And oftentimes it's not a popularity contest. People, you know, uh, maybe you'll be in great shape and you know, the, the, you, uh, you get along, maybe not, you know, but, but you gotta be yourself. And then, uh, if you can be positive and you should be positive and figure out how to be positive, you can help create that learning environment, and you must have a learning environment to succeed in mission command. If people think they take a chance uh, and, and they'll be punished and their career's over if they make a mistake, you don't have a shot at mission command and succeeding in today's complex world. I can remember uh, in combat as a striker brigade commander, having company commanders uh, out there empowered, doing amazing things, battalion commanders. One time a company commander made a mistake and a three-star commander called me directly as the, uh, you know, as the uh, colonel brigade commander. You know, Bob, how could that happen? How the hell could they do that? What was he thinking? Are you going to punish him? And I, and I said, sir, you know, remember those like 12 good things that happened over the last 10 days? All right. If you want to stop, none of those will happen again if you uh, punish this guy because – you know, he, I'm not talking about anything illegal, immoral. I'm talking about trying to do the right thing and you make a mistake. And if you punish this guy for that, you'll kill innovation. And if you kill innovation, then, then uh, we'll lose. And uh, so, you know, to that, that uh, three stars credit, you know, got it. Okay, I understand. You know, but uh, so you've got you've to empower people. And, uh, you know, we have a generation that's afraid of failing. Um, all of us. I was afraid of failing when I was young, but I actually speak speak to a lot of young leaders today, and I say, you're, if you if you don't ever fail, you're not doing a damn thing. Any successful person is going to fail, 
And again, I'm not talking about illegal, immoral, unethical. No, you know, that's not acceptable. But trying to do the right thing and failing, that's part of success. I think it was Churchill that said success is failing over and over again and not losing your enthusiasm. You know, and how do you how do you continue to uh, learn from your mistakes and how you react to failure? You're going to fail in any anything in, in, in combat. If you're not failing, you're not doing a damn thing in the same way in uh, in, in uh, any other endeavor in life. So uh, what we do and, and part of the reason I think this generation is uh, younger folks. And I'll say being an old old guy now, I'll say anybody really about 35 and younger, you know, when they fail now, they it's you know, when I failed when I was young, I could keep it isolated family, friends. It wasn't broadcast to everybody. What happens now? It's out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's everywhere. And of course, human nature is to jump on that. I guess it makes people feel good about their failures that they see, oh, Brown failed and, oh, it's everywhere. And they're, you know, they're harping on it and it goes everywhere. And uh, it's it's a damn shame. But, you know, so I understand their their hesitance. Uh, they're they're you know, to to fail. I mean, it's not fun to fail, you know, but I think some of the things that have made me uh, a much better leader uh, is when I, from having failed and seen that and then understanding people in command, you know, my command, when they fail, uh, go to them, uh, don't avoid them, go to them, talk to them, help them get through it. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you learn from it and then you, you come out a lot better on the other side if you do it right. Yes, sir. Sir, that's powerful. I think that's a that's a really good message for for all of us down here trying to trying to figure it out. Um, and it was helpful for me to hear a leader draw a distinction between a mistake and misconduct um, that that put it in two in two different buckets for me. And I was able to classify um, you know failure a little bit better when I heard it that way. Yeah, I used to talk to uh, when again when I was commanding Benning at twelve thousand armor and infantry soldiers in basic training every day. I'd go out to their training and you know when they're waiting at the range and stuff, I gather a couple hundred of them. And it was really funny because, you know, I'd say, you know, I'd ask them what questions you have. They'd always be like, what does it take to be a general? You know, I said, well, obviously not good looks, you know. And uh, and uh, but they would, you know, they would they would say I'd say, what do you think? And they'd say, well, you never made a mistake. You know, you you, you did everything right your whole career. I tell you, I couldn't stop laughing when I'd hear that. And I'd tell them two or three mistakes and then we didn't have time to go on to. I mean, I could talk to them for three hours about failure, you know, but you learn from it and how you react to it is the important thing. And again, that's mission, command, empowerment, trust, prudent, uh, you know, risk. And you have that dialogue with the commanders and, you know, you know, again, there's certain things you can't fail in, of course, you know, if it's illegal, immoral. But but other things, you know, you 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 have to to succeed. No, that, that's 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 great, sir. Absolutely. Just to close out here, just want to ask you a little bit about um, your your day as a leader. You know, I mean, your your habits, routines. What do you go to for professional development and to grow yourself every day? You know, as the user pack commander. Yeah, I think well, uh, you know, we always hear balance, balance, balance. I'm not sure it's balance because you know, if it was balance, I'd spend as much time with my family as I do at work, and that's impossible in any field. You know, obviously, but I think there's expectations you set. And I think one thing that's key is my I always felt I have three daughters, uh, four grandkids now and uh, amazing young, uh, young women, my daughters and uh, my wife's amazing. She's just getting her Ph.D. in education right now. I've been an educator for 30 plus years. And I think one thing is, you know, they knew uh, that I, I had to work hard, of course. But if I could, I would be with them. You know, I mean, I didn't, you know, when I was deployed or when I was gone, they knew I wanted to be with them. So that's why, for example, like I'm lousy at golf because I didn't golf on Saturdays (laughs) for eight hours with my buddies. My hobby was my family, kids events and family events and things we do together and your investment in that. So, no, it wasn't equal time between work and the family, but it certainly was quality time. And they knew I would be with them if I could. And I think uh, the other thing is you can't be afraid to tell. I see folks are afraid to tell their boss or others they're working with that they're going to a family event, that they're supporting their family. It's like, you know, it's like you're weak or something. We were made to feel guilty if we do that. And, and, and I think that's absolutely wrong. I mean, I, I, it wasn't easy, but I tell bosses, look, I'm going to my daughter's cross country meet. You know, I'm not going to miss it. I'll work. I'll work. I'll get into work three hours early tomorrow to make up the time, but I'm not missing this family event. I think that's important. And I used to have, when I was a battalion commander, a brigade commander gave me crap for that all the time. He'd call me at 
eight o'clock and say, you know, where are you? I'm at work. And I'd say, I'm home with my family, you know, and, uh, Fortunately, he ended up uh, kind of being a little bit self-serving. He ended up retiring uh, after brigade command. And uh, so, you know, and, and it ended up working out. To, but anyway, uh, you know, so I, I always had a philosophy kind of get home at a reasonable time to be with your family. And if you have to do additional work, come in early because family's not up at 4, 4.35. I haven't had to do that much, but sometimes you have to. And uh, and so and then I think, you know, there's uh, the, the performance triad that we've seen. Uh, recently a down first line supervised level developed by the Surgeon General at Medcom. It's just terrific getting it to units, you know, and they talk rest, activity, and nutrition. And boy, that's a great lesson. You know, be much more prevent. I wish we'd have had that when I was started in the Army. I wouldn't have brand new knees right now. I had to get new knees because all we did for the first 20 years I was in was push-ups, sit-ups, and running, you know, yes, like sir. crazy. Right. And there was no uh, balance, uh, activity, you know, rest, nutritional concerns, proactive, you know, physical trainers, stretching, all that stuff that's so important. But that balance, rest, uh, activity, and nutrition, it's out there, first-line supervisors. I think that's really key. Now, for the professional development aspect of it, that's kind of balance and family. I think one thing that's really important is it's hard. <laughs> I just talked about balance, but read. I remember Colin Powell, when I was a colonel at the War College, Colin Powell talked to us. He said uh, he was he was in the War College sitting where we were. I was at National War College. And he was going to Brigade Command afterwards, and he thought, you know, he was pretty, felt pretty ready for Brigade Command. But he didn't feel real ready for things after that. And so he started reading and in particular started reading biographies. He said, you know, in a book, you can read uh, in a in a book, you can read the lessons of a lifetime of a famous leader. So really got to me starting. I started to read biography a lot. And I remember reading about Bradley, for example, Omar Bradley. Uh, and, uh, and it was one phase he was sent by Marshall to command Fort Benning in 1941 prior to World War Two. And he was sent there to get airborne going and do certain things. And he had to uh, the, nobody between Marshall and Bradley thought airborne units, uh, whatever, you know, they, they weren't they weren't around yet, thought that was even a good idea. So Bradley figured out how to get the info to Marshall directly, skip the staff. And lo and behold, we had the 82nd Airborne, the wonderful airborne units because of it. And Bradley and Marshall created this, you know, it was this whole thing, the spirit of Benning. Something special about Benning. So I, remember, I read that in the war college. Later, a few years later, I'd be commanding Benning. And lo and behold, things I wanted to do, I had to go directly to the chief of staff. Things like the squad as the uh, foundation of the decisive force and uh, lethality for the soldiers and, uh, and uh, resilience and, and uh, so forth. I had to go directly to the chief of staff, skipping the staff. Uh, even things like going from heavy brigade combat team, why the hell we call it that, to naming it armored brigade combat team. You know, the staff didn't want to deal with it. So you go directly to the chief of staff, which I had learned from reading about Bradley. And then seizing on the spirit of Benning from Marshall and Bradley, I implemented that when I was at Benning, the spirit of Benning, and, and we built in that incredible past to move forward as an armor and infantry maneuver community. So reading is key. Also good to read. Sports books like Legacy is a great book about the New Zealand okay. uh, All Blacks rugby team. That's a tremendous mm -hmm. one about building teams. And they use lots of examples from sports, business, and military. And then other sports books. And then there's some great civilian business. You mentioned some, some uh, uh, earlier. And uh, I think Start With Why is a great one. And Good to mm -hmm. Great is another tremendous one. And, and then the other thing is, don't faint when I say this, but read our doctrines pretty amazing. And I will tell you, I was a doctrine rebel for most of my career. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't start reading all the doctrine until I had to command Fort Leavenworth and I was in charge of doctrine. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm really proud uh, that, uh, you know, while I was at Leavenworth, we came up with the idea. We realized leader development is not happening across the Army. Why? Well, we're at such an op-tempo, you know, for 16-plus years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, – that we'd forgotten how to develop leaders. So we actually came up with the first ever field manual and doctrine for leader development, FM 622 leader development. It is incredible. I'm bragging, but I'll tell you, General Lowe, when he, before he left his chief of staff, held it up to all the division and corps commanders and said it's the best leadership development manual he's ever seen. And then there was an article in the paper talking about uh, a civilian who had stumbled onto it and quoted it multiple times as uh, with thousands of leadership books is uh, 
the best they'd ever seen. And it covers some really key stuff in there on leader development, you know, fundamentals of, of development and how to create a program, historical examples going back to Marshall, Bradley, recent examples from brigades, battalion commanders. Uh, and then, you know, uh, specifics of how to get there and how to build trust how to get after it and uh, how to, uh, I mean, it just goes into a whole bunch of stuff. So, and there's a whole bunch of other doctrine that's really terrific, like the new FM 3.0, et cetera. And it's not popular, but there are ways there's living doctrine out there. We can download it to your device uh, and, and you can watch videos and, and other things to, uh, to get after it. And then I, I think that's just a key thing that you've got to do. It's tough to do. You never have time, but use those times like uh, airplane flights, downtime, when you're, you know, two hours early uh, for the CIF issue and, you know, all that kind of stuff, there is time yeah, to make it. Yeah. No, that's right, sir. Yeah. Sometimes we get locked into the idea that we only study doctrine when we're at the institutional assignments yeah. or when we're going to a yeah. school. And uh, yeah, it's important to bring it into the unit. Yes, sir. Well, sir, uh, I, um, I cannot thank you enough for, well, first taking the time here to, to chat, but really for the investment in uh, in every leader that you come into contact with. I think it's refreshing uh, when we get somebody who really uh, is passionate about developing leaders. And uh, so we just appreciate everything you do. Yeah, no, it's my honor. Again, I really applaud your efforts here, Drew. Just fantastic. And uh, I, I think, boy, I would have loved to have uh, gotten on the military leader site as I was coming up through the ranks and had, you know, some people may say, well, you know, you're going to show stuff. You're going to you're going to have podcasts uh, or things on your 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 site there that maybe they're not approved. They're not, you know, uh, proven. Uh, but I would say uh, that that's key that you share ideas and oftentimes the best ideas, uh, you know, uh, it, you will know they're proven and, and it's pretty obvious. And the, the only other thing I'd like to comment, I think you had a, a great point. I was looking at some of your stuff, you know, uh, difference between a boss and a mentor. And, you know, and you're like, everyone has a boss and a structure, everybody, you know, you, you know, and, uh, and usually you have no choice who your boss is and stuff. And hopefully the good news about the army, the military, uh, you, you move pretty frequently. So, you get a boss you don't necessarily get along with you you're not stuck forever like sometimes civilian jobs you could be 10 years with a person you don't get along with and it's pretty tough i've seen that quite a bit on the outside but the other thing is uh, i think a mentor though successful people have mentors and you can't make it mandatory we, we looked at that across the army it doesn't work when it's mandatory but you have to have that individual go to for advice for guidance the mutual respect that is there and you don't usually uh, you know, it talks this in FM 622 leader development. You don't need to go and say, would you be my mentor? You know, I, I've, I've maybe once in 37 years, I've had somebody say that, but send you questions, start to dialogue, ask you, call you and talk. You naturally become the mentor. You have mentors, you're mentoring folks. I, I think what, what's interesting, it's not instant, uh, the, the satisfaction from that, but it is the most satisfying thing are those you invest in and then to see them uh, be successful. I have folks who I've mentored were company commanders for me are general officers now uh, to see them successful is the greatest satisfaction and reward. It's not instantaneous, but it is unbelievable. And it's, it's a legacy being carried on of, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, it, that is unbelievable. So I just wanted to mention that. I thought I saw that in some of your stuff and we, we didn't get touch on that. Maybe we're taking too much time. But I think that is really, really important you know, to get after. Yes, sir. I, I am really um, I, I'm just amazed at the way that our um, that our profession works and that leaders, whether it's commanders or uh, maybe you're know, working for an S3 who's influential or something, they invest yeah. in people. And then you see that yeah. lesson later down the road. You know, my first battalion commander, he, he made it a point to teach us SDZs and direct fire right. control. You right. know, and by God, if I'm, if that's not my priority here for these young lieutenants, you know, 15 years yeah. later, it's just amazing how it works. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and it really is uh, uh, an investment in people. And for us, unlike, again, the other services do it, uh, they, they have mentors, they do leader development, but nobody does it like us because we're about people and uh, we're not platform centric, we're people centric. And we realize that is the advantage, the ability, again, to uh, have leaders that thrive and to empower them is the only way in this complex world to succeed. So I applaud your efforts and military leader. Uh, tremendous idea in these podcasts. And even if it's only uh, you and me that listen to it, I'll consider it a success. You know, what the hell? 
Well, sir, absolutely, sir. You know, there is, I'm, I'm really excited to see there's a crop of junior leaders across the Army. You know, you think uh, Josh Powers, of course, that you yeah. know, Nate, Nate Finney out there, Doug Meyer here, uh, Joe Byerly with From the Green Notebook. And there's a surge of a voice that wants to just contribute and share and yeah. grow the force. And I'm really excited to be a part of it, sir. It's really neat. Yeah, thank you so much, sir. This was a great talk. Thank you. Thanks for what you're doing, and thanks for the opportunity. All right, who are one team, Army Strong. Wow, tons of great lessons there from General Brown. I hope you enjoyed it. I always get fired up when I hear him talk about leadership. And a big thanks to General Brown for taking the time out of his busy day to do the interview. Really appreciate it, sir. Okay, for next week, we've got none other than the creator of Doctrine Man, Steve Leonard. That's right, the man behind the infamous cartoons and snark of Doctrine Man has agreed to come on and talk about the Doctrine Man story, how it started, and how he keeps it going today. He'll also share his lessons of life and leadership from his career as an Army strategist. I want to give you a sneak peek of that episode. It was a really fun chat. Check it out. And the whole thing, it's funny because the whole thing with the secret identity was was almost a, a joke. Because as we as I evolved the character, I thought, well, I want something obvious. Because people who knew me, at least the original probably thousand people, they all knew. There was no secret because they were on the email. So I wanted an identity that was Clark Kentish, that anybody who looked at me could figure it out, but I wouldn't have to tell them. And and so when people did discover over time, uh, it was they, they'd look at you and they'd say, oh, I knew it all along. I just didn't know. It was right in front of me. And it's because my humor comes out, the way I talk comes out, the way I engage comes out. It's really it, – everything's – Everything is there, but it's like Clark Kent. He puts the glasses on. You don't know it's Superman. Takes the glasses off. You say, oh, it's Superman. And it's, it's the, so it was the same. It was part of the gag to just make it so obvious that everybody would figure it out. And then no one figured it out. And then that became part of the fun. You have no idea how much fun it was to be able to sit in a room with General Odierno and have him make a comment about, God, I hope Doctrine Man's nowhere around to hear this. And, and you say... Oh, au contraire, our doctrine man's right here in the corner taking notes. <laughs> and I did. I, I would sit and uh, probably for the last 10 years of my career, I worked all at the three and four star level and I sat in the back of meetings and I would flip my green notebook to the back and I would say, okay, here's an idea. You know, we're, we're going to do, we're going to do a chief of staff of the army cartoon, a sec army cartoon, a sec defense cartoon. And we would have little things and I would write down little things I heard and then that would be the genesis of a of a new cartoon, general officer speak lists, things like that. Little little things that you would only pick up in those meetings. Look for that interview with Steve Leonard of Doctrine Man next week. I want to thank you again for checking out this episode of the Military Leader Podcast. If you liked it, be sure to share it with your network and start a conversation about leadership. And if you want to leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, head on over there and be sure to visit themilitaryleader.com and join the conversation about leadership. Music from this episode was composed by Ilya Rayovsky, who created a custom piece for the military leader. You can check out his work over on Fiverr. Thanks again, and until next time, lead well.